Oh, come on, Beltway Park. Some of you going, I knew it. I knew that's how they were treating my packages and such. To be fair, there are delivery drivers among us. I will not have you identify yourself right now. But to be fair to them, it is estimated that there are 60 million packages delivered every day in America. Come on, 60 million. Let's be honest, most of them show up okay, right? I mean, no one ever pulls their ring video of some delivery man coming and gently putting the package down right where it belongs or even taking the extra to hide it from the porch pirates and stuff like that. We never post that on social media. No, 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 only the exceptions. Only the dude that's chunking it and stuff like that. I get it. I understand. We have an expectation that packages, because the delivery driver has no idea what's in it, it could be very, very valuable. And because of the possibility of value, we expect that every package will be handled with care. Listen to me. As a society, we have quit doing that with something far more precious than packages. There are subjects that we are dealing with, the contents of which are immensely valuable, and yet we treat them with such arrogance and anger. There's topics that if we're going to deal with them, we have to make sure we handle with care. And the reason isn't just so someone else won't be mad at me. I, I believe that the pursuit of peace in every conversation is actually a very biblical pursuit, but that's not the primary reason. The primary reason we handle these with care is because they have to do with people. Every one of these topics isn't just a theoretical topic we're talking about. They all have to do with somebody's life. A person who is made in the image of the Almighty. A person of such great value and worth that Jesus paid the price of his life for them. A person who is going to spend eternity somewhere. We handle the difficult situations of our day with great care because that's what Jesus did. One time Jesus was on the temple mount and the religious leaders of the day sought to trap him. You see, they had been observing Jesus and they noticed something about him that was different than their lives. Jesus associated with people that he shouldn't associate with. Like, he ate with prostitutes. He had coffee with tax collectors. And the religious leaders of the day, they would never do that. They felt like if I touched somebody who was so off, somebody who was such a sinner, that I, in the very presence of them, be, would become unclean. They wouldn't do that, but Jesus did. So they found a woman who the text says was caught in the very act of adultery. If we take that very literally, it means she was in bed with a man who was not her husband, and one or both of them were married, and they brought, the, brought her to Jesus. Just a side note, isn't it interesting that they only brought the woman, but that they didn't bring the man? I'm, I'm just saying. They bring this woman, and they say to Jesus, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And it says that Jesus bent over and started writing, and people get sidetracked by wondering what Jesus wrote. Doesn't matter. If God wanted us to know what he wrote, he would tell us. What matters is the interaction. Jesus said, stood up and said, Let him who is without a sin among you be the first to throw a stone at 
her. And one by one, the accusers left the scene. Then notice this interaction. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, what? No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. Now look carefully. Jesus loved this woman and he loved the truth of God. Maybe to be more specific, Jesus loved this woman by loving the truth of God. Notice, he doesn't excuse, he doesn't condone, he doesn't affirm what she did. He called it what? He called it sin. He didn't say, hey, hey, I, I understand the situation. The religious leaders, it might be wrong for them to commit adultery, but maybe it's not wrong for you. So you don't worry about them. You just go do you, boo. Whatever feels right to you, whatever feels good to you, that's great. You do your truth. No, no, he didn't say that. He not only called it sin, he told her, don't do it anymore. Go and sin no more. He called her to a life of change. Listen to me. Foundational to the gospel is the call to change. You cannot embrace Jesus and not embrace change because that's what Jesus does. Jesus had been in the wilderness and he had been tempted after fasting 40 days and 40 nights. And it says, from that time in the wilderness, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent means to literally do a 180 degree turn. It means to be going this way to now go this way. It is more than just acknowledging that maybe some of the actions of my life may be wrong. It is saying they are wrong. I'm going to turn and I'm going to start following the truths of God. Why is that? Sin, hear the word. Sin violates the way God designed humanity. The way he designed creation. Sin is what the enemy used to steal, kill, and destroy from our life. Sin destroys. God loves us too much not to tell us about sin. But at the same time, notice, Jesus doesn't attack her. There's no rebuke from Jesus. He doesn't verbally or emotionally go MMA on her, does he? There's no shame. He just gave her opportunity. Opportunity to change. Opportunity to step in all that God designed for her life. Interestingly, we don't know the end of the story. We don't know if she accepted the opportunity, do we? It is possible that she received this great gift from Jesus, this great opportunity, and she went straight back to the house of the man that she had been with. That she returned to the bed of her supposed lover sometime that week. We don't know if she, off, she embraced the offer of, uh, of grace. We just know Jesus offered the opportunity. See, that is a great picture of how Jesus handled the difficult situations of his day, which, by the way, are the same difficulties we face today. The scripture says of Jesus, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld his glory, the glory of the only son who came from the father full of, and notice the two words, grace and truth. Somebody say and. The and is a huge word here because too often what we think is we have to pick one or the other. That I'm either a person of grace or I'm a person of truth. And Jesus didn't do that. He came full of utterly complete, not half and half, full of grace and full of truth. We must do both. Truth is the clearly revealed ways of God in Scripture. And I want you to hear me, make no mistake, Jesus had a high standard of truth. If you read the gospel accounts and you start asking yourself, what does the Scripture say, what does it say about truth in Jesus? Jesus held a way high standard. 
Just read the Sermon on the Mount, Romans 5, 6, and 7. Take you 18 minutes or so to speak it out loud, probably 12 minutes to read. He had such a high standard of truth that he said not only is murder sinful, but hatred in your heart is equally wrong. Not only is adultery immoral, but lust in your heart is equally erroneous. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus held to a very, very, very high standard of truth. Truth that he held to because truth is an outgrowth of the very character of God himself. In the name of being gracious, in the name of being loving, we cannot in any form or fashion compromise the revealed truth of God in Scripture. However, in response to society today, we cannot at the same time abandon the idea of grace. What we see in Jesus, Jesus accepted people without affirming the sins in their lives. This, listen to me, this is the delineator right here. This is the key phrase, key idea in this whole journey we're going to be on. Our society today says that if you truly accept someone, you have to affirm their lifestyle. That you can't be accepting, you can't be loving, you can't be gracious if you do not absolutely affirm that the choices someone made might be true for them. They may not be true for you, but they might be true for them. We have to be such a people. It's what society says, not what Jesus did. Jesus accepted people without affirming the sins in their lives. I would challenge that as Jesus followers, when society and Jesus differ, we go with Jesus. And this is the way we handle this. One author says it well, Jesus hung out with prostitutes, but he didn't endorse prostitution. Jesus hung out with tax collectors, but he didn't affirm extortion. Jesus defended a woman caught in adultery, but he wasn't pro-adultery. Jesus showed people their worth. He showed people their value. He showed people how much the Father loved them, and he gave them opportunity to change. He gave them opportunity to repent. Grace and truth, and we must embrace both. If we want to walk as Jesus did in this culture, no matter the circumstances, no matter the situations we might face in life, we must seek to do it in both grace and truth. If we major in one at the expense of the other, we will end up in serious error, always. Now, I understand as you're thinking about it, you're thinking grace and truth, it just feels like the two are pulling each other at each other. That's, that's like not easy to do. I would tell you it's more than not easy. It's more than even difficult. It is impossible in human strength. But here's the good news. Jesus' followers don't live by human strength. The scripture says, since we live by the Spirit, the Spirit of the Almighty himself rests inside of us, since we live by the Spirit, we can keep in step with the Spirit, which means the Spirit, in any and every circumstance, can enable us to walk in a wisdom, to know how to be gracious, how to be true in any circumstances. We have, listen to me, a supernatural power from God where we can walk in grace and truth, whatever we might face, Whatever issue of our day we might be dealing with, including the issue of abortion. By the power of the Spirit of God inside of us, I am absolutely convinced we are a people who can contend for all life. You see, as Christians, as we think about this subject, some questions have to come to our mind. The first question we always ask, does the Scripture reveal to us anything? 
Does the scripture reveal to us an element of truth? Does the scripture say anything about the personhood of the unborn? And the answer is a resounding yes. It's throughout scripture. Genesis 25, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why does this happen? So she went and inquired of the Lord. Quick side note, the Bible wasn't written originally in English. Old Testament, primarily in an ancient form of Hebrew, the New Testament in an ancient form of Greek, and there's actually some other languages mixed in there, but they're not very much. So on occasion, we'll mention the nuances of these languages just to point out what the ancients thought. In Genesis 25, 22, this word, underline babies, is the Hebrew word that is used of a baby that has been born as well as a baby that is in utero. Exact same word. Luke 1, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped where? In her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So in this case, in the ancient Greek language, baby refers to John the baptizer while he was in utero of his mother. Yet the next chapter, Luke chapter two, and the shepherds went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. Just a question, anybody know who that baby is? Hey, just make sure you were listening during the Christmas season, okay? In this case, the baby is Jesus, who had just been birthed by Mary. Luke 1, word baby, in utero. Luke 2, same word in the original language, used of a baby, Jesus, as he lay in the manger. To go a bit further, the angel prophesying at the birth of John the Baptist said, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even in his what? His mother's womb. Now catch this. Never does the Bible say that the Spirit of God fills an animal. God did speak through an animal, we know that, but it doesn't say he filled an animal. Never does the scripture say that he fills like a body part, an arm, a leg, a kidney, a liver, or anything like that. Tissue is not filled with the Holy Spirit. Persons are filled with the Holy Spirit. Only people receive the Holy Spirit in the Bible. John was filled with the Spirit even in his mother's womb. John was filled with the Spirit in utero. You could keep going through the scripture, Job. And if I've denied justice to my men servants and maid servants when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to, to give an account? Did not he who made me where? In the womb. Did he not make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? Guys, I, I could keep going and going and going with scriptures like these. But what I can tell you is the scripture continually affirms the humanness. The personhood of the baby within the womb of her mother. The being in the womb is not a potential human. It is a human with great potential, a human that is utterly defenseless. And of all the things Scripture calls us to do in bringing justice to the world, it is to make sure we defend those that are most defenseless. In asking if the Bible says anything about the personhood of the unborn, the most controversial passage is actually a law 
in the Old Testament, a law to ancient Israel. Now, as I, as I lay this out, you got to realize that the ancients did not value life much. Like, if we think that maybe we struggle as a nation and a world is a value of life, it's not anything like the ancients. The ancients would kill people left and right, whether they were in utero or out of utero. They just didn't hold to life. But when it came to the unborn, there were ancient forms of abortion. You can look it up online. The Romans kind of developed some of the first tools, if I may, that are likened to some of the ones we use today. But that wasn't the common way because they were so difficult, like mothers didn't usually survive it. So what they would do is just let the baby be born, and they would do things like sacrifice them to the idols of Molech and Baal. The Romans didn't sacrifice them. They just threw them on trash heaps. Called it exposure. We just left them out of the elements, let the elements take care of it. That's how much they valued life. That's how the ancients viewed things. That's the world of ancient Israel. But then the scripture says, if men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she, now notice this phrase, this is key, gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury. The offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. If there is serious injury, though, you are to take what? Life for life. Now, a few Bible translations takes that phrase, born prematurely, and they actually translate it miscarriage. So that changes the whole nature of the text. If Exodus 21, 22 refers to a miscarriage, that means there has been a fight, a, wo a pregnant woman is hit, she, her baby is born not alive, but that doesn't matter. The reference here is only to a serious injury to the mother. If the mother's life is lost, she miscarries, you're to take life for life. If not, no big deal. But if the term is she gives birth prematurely, which, by the way, in the ancient language is accurate. This is not the word for miscarriage. It's, word, it's the word for premature birth. So baby, basically, the baby comes early, but the baby is alive. So if there's no serious injury to the baby or to the mother, fine. There's a fine that is levied. But if there is serious injury to the mom or the baby, you are to do what? Take life for life. The law of ancient Israel, like no other law, protected equally the life of the mother and the life of an unborn child. There's no law like it in any place in the ancient world. Listen to me. This is God showing us Something unique and something different. And using his ancient people as ones who were set aside from the rest of society. He shows us the reality of the situation. Again and again, the scripture confirms that the being inside the womb of a woman is not just a potential human, but a human with great potential. But here's what's even more amazing. Listen to the language of our society, and we actually affirm that. If you listen carefully to the media, to portrayals of pregnancy on TV, movies, and things such as that, or you just listen to people who announce they're pregnant, you will hear this inconsistency. It is being said again and again in our culture, one author says, that though, one, though no one seems to acknowledge the contradiction, it raises with abortion. The same people who say it is merely a blob of tissue are quick to condemn and sue a car company for killing a baby and a baby when a woman and her preborn child are killed in a car wreck. If a man shoots and kills a pregnant woman, he can be charged with killing both the mother and the baby. 
Does that not seem incongruent to you? Here's what I've noticed. Either in person or, or when you do TVs, movies, and the like, if the pregnancy is portrayed as being wanted, then the language to reference that which is in the womb of the woman is always baby, child, or a name. It is only when the child is perceived to be unwanted that all of a sudden the language changes. And all of a sudden we start using words like fetus, blob of tissue, it. You hear me? The biblical truth we must stand for is that an unborn baby is human. From the very beginning, a human made in the image of the Almighty. A human that according to our founding documents has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is why I'll never forget where I was when I heard the news that Roe v. Wade had been overturned in our land. I'd been praying for that for three decades. And that a step towards rightness, please, it didn't resolve all the issues. It hasn't done everything it's supposed to do, I mean, that we need done. But I rejoice that a measure of rightness has returned to our nation. Listen to me, I, I know this idea of laws and how does Christianity work with laws and politics and all that, it, it, it's a confusing thing. So I'm gonna talk about it in one of these messages. I'm not gonna tell you when, you just have to show up for all of them and you kind of hit and miss whatever it is we're gonna talk about, you got it? But I will tell you this now, every law that is created is based on an ideology. Every law is based on a philosophy. Every law is based on some thought about what is best for society. As a people, we should be pressing for righteousness in our laws. And I am confident we can do that without making somebody become a Christian. I don't think we should push Christianity. But the essence of the Christian faith is what? Accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. I am utterly against any law, anywhere, anytime, that says somebody has to, by law, to be a citizen of a nation, embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That violates the truth of Scripture. But that does not mean that we cannot use righteousness as revealed to us by God to ask for laws that would be for the good of the whole of society. I'm just saying, and I believe this allows us to do that when it comes to abortion. You see, the reason I rejoice at the rightness of Roe v. Wade being overturned for many reasons isn't just the protection of the life of the unborn, though that is massive. Guys, I've been doing this a long time. Listen to me. I've been almost 25 years of this role at Beltway Park. Prior to that, nine years on a church staff in Lubbock. Prior to that, I was in school preparing for ministry but also leading in churches. I've been part of churches that have served tens of thousands of people to bring salvation, to bring hope, and to bring freedom in people's lives. And from a lot of experience, I need you to hear me. Abortion doesn't just rob life from the unborn. Abortion robs life from the parents as well. And there are now tens of millions of those parents in our nation because of what we have allowed in the last decades of our country history. See, abortion makes a promise. It says, you're in, you're out, it's quick, easy, done, you forget about everything and you move on. 
And it is a lie. It is a lie from the pit of hell. And it is destroying people's lives. And I'm tired of the enemy having places in people's lives. He's taken this ideology. See, we have an enemy, and the enemy isn't satisfied with just the unborn. Man, we're seeing it in studies. There's one very prestigious study that acknowledges that many women, not all women, but many women who go through an abortion suffer PTSD. I mean, just like men and women who go to war, they suffer post-traumatic stress syndrome. In one of the longest-running studies on the effects of abortion, we found that at first, abortion brings the idea of positive relief. It's like something is dealt with, but then that positive emotions, they go away. And all of a sudden, these negative things begin to rise and increase and increase. We've encountered thousands of women, and by the way, men who are part of this. And they're ensnared by the trap of the enemy, trapped in guilt, stuck in shame due to the abortion that they participated in. Let me be clear. The enemy isn't just after the life of the unborn. He's out to destroy every life. If the studies done by social scientists are correct, it means that between 25 and 33% of the people in our rooms today have participated in an abortion. I know there are people who probably are avoiding being present right now because they heard about the topics and I didn't reveal an order and so until this is dealt with, they're not showing up because of what's happened. There's people who are online right now and the reason you're online and may be tempted to turn this off is because of this and I'm just gonna tell you, listen to me. I'm not a prophet, I don't claim a prophetic gifting. I don't have to be a prophet to know what the enemy is doing right now. The enemy is lying. And what he is saying is this, you can tell no one, especially the people in this church. They're too passionate about life. They're gonna hate you. They are gonna reject you. And then the enemy goes on. He says, in fact, you know this, God is passionate about life. He contends for life. You know that. What you've done, the enemy tells you, is unforgivable. You will never be able to be right completely with God here or in eternity. This is now your wound. This is now your lot. You have to carry this shame. You have to carry this guilt for the rest of your life into eternity. If that is you, I have been praying for you. I have walked our rooms and I put my hand on the chairs. And for you online, I put hands on the camera. And I pray that you have grace to hear me. I'm not gonna try to convince you of some way of minimizing the wrongness of abortion. You already know that better than I do. But I want you to hear me. What Jesus did is greater than what you did. Listen to me, the rightness of Jesus and everything he did is greater than any of your wrongs. The rightness of Jesus, his love, mercy, compassion, forgiveness is greater than any sin you may have ever committed that I have ever committed in life. And listen to me, I've committed a lot of them. I have never participated in an abortion, but I have sinned mightily before the Almighty. And his rightness, listen to me, is greater than our wrongness. And our cry here is for life. And I need you to hear, it is not just for the life of the unborn, but it is for your life. 
It is for the life of every person who ever has existed that you would have the fullness of abundant life that Jesus died for you to have. I want you to know you don't have to go through this alone. There is grace and there's healing. The very first time I had an abortion, I was only 20, 22. I had just recently been divorced and uh, just broken. And the man that I was with, was he was married and he was a, he was a drug addict. He didn't have any, any um, basically like me, didn't, didn't feel like he had any self-worth. So it was um, just something to do. The mental illness just started to manifest. I lost my identity and I was labeled bipolar. My body just picked up everything to, to lose who I was myself. And I wasn't, I wasn't Debbie anymore. I was just hard person that you were not gonna get me. I couldn't even say the word abortion because it was just so, so traumatic and I didn't wanna hear the word. I didn't want, I, nobody else had the right to say the word because that was, that was my pain and my choice. And I, I just took for what the counselor at the facility told me that was the best option and that was the thing for me to do. But when I started to realize and listen to the Lord's sweet voice that that is not who I was, that's not where he would want me to be on the, the floor of hell, I started to just take those little spoon-fed bits of, of love that he just so sweet would feed me and change. I started checking into the freedom classes and all that started to change. And I started to surrender, really surrender. And then I took the class, Surrender the Secret of Abortion. And I really, really learned the heart of our Father, His love for me, and that there was no sin, no sin that couldn't ever be forgiven. I have an amazing daughter. She's going to be 27. And I don't have to ever wonder if she was ever put in that situation as a single mom, if she became a mom and as a single mother, that she would choose an abortion. She would not. She would choose life over and over again because she knows the trauma that it caused me, the trauma that it causes women. Abortion is so traumatic to the soul. It, it's not, it is not a birth control. It is a life-altering, traumatic event. So I tell you, sisters and even brothers, if you've suffered or know somebody that suffered, lay it down, get free. I've tasted and seen and continue to taste and see and, and, and just love the goodness of the Lord. Did you hear it? Grace and truth. I want you to listen to me, please. If somehow abortion is part of your journey, I want you to hear there is forgiveness. There is restoration and there is healing. 
And I make you the promise we will contend for your life at the same time as we contend for the life of the unborn. That is what I believe Jesus would have us do. I'm confident of that. You heard Debbie talk about it. We have a ministry here called our Freedom Ministry. It's a journey to be set free from our past so that we can be launched into the abundant life and the totality of that that Jesus died for us to have. I would encourage you, if you've been a part of this man or woman, take advantage of the freedom opportunities as they arise. We also have a partner ministry in our community celebrating its fourth decade in Abilene called Pregnancy Resources of Abilene. Um, I've been blessed to personally serve on the board. I'm actually the board president for like the past 20 years. Um, I just keep renominating myself to be president because I like it so much and they're just going to have to push me out. I'm just so overwhelmed by what, what we get to do. If you're experiencing an unplanned pregnancy, you find yourself in that situation, or you find somebody, I, I can't tell you of a more empowering place to go than pregnancy resources. An incredible place, so full of grace, so full of truth. When you're in an unplanned pregnancy, if I may, not what we wanted in this situation, and we really weren't in a place for it, there's not an easy decision. I get that. But us stepping into what God wants in some form or fashion will always lead to the best of lives. Walking in the ways of God and pregnancy resources is a place that empowers people without rebuke, without shame. And the grace of Jesus Christ empowers us to have the opportunity to make that choice just like Jesus. You will hear the same thing. I don't condemn you, but let's go and sin no more. Just a, just a side note, year 2022, Pregnancy Resources had the chance to minister to over 1,800 men and women. 1,800. Not all of them have an unplanned pregnancy, but all think they do. Here's what's incredible. We know, and this overwhelms my heart, we know of 73 children that were at risk of having their life terminated who are alive right now because of the ministry of Pregnancy Resources. And I say thank you, Jesus, for that reality. But at the same time, we at Pregnancy Resources have a ministry for those who have gone through an abortion. There is counseling, there is freedom ministry, that may be the place you wanna go, professional counseling, we're there to serve and help. Listen carefully to the word of the Lord. The Lord heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. We contend for that here. Listen to me, Beltway Park. We can stand for the unborn and we can contend for those who've been deceived. And we can do so with grace and compassion because we ourselves have all been deceived. Amen? We may be deceived in different ways, but we have all been deceived by the enemy. And so we bring grace to any situation where people have been deceived. The Lord heals is his promise. The Lord binds. Let's take a moment before we go. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have experienced the healing of the Lord. At a certain level, you have had him bind up your wounds. We need to say thank you. Jesus, thank you. Thank God for his grace in our lives. It is abundant. When Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world, he didn't have to. We were already condemned. We did it ourselves. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For the son did not come into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. He offers salvation. Salvation is more than just being right with God. It's being restored to everything God designed for us to have. And he does that over time and I want you to know he's going to do that now. So thank you for it. Thank you for what he has done. Thank you for the way he's restoring Thank you for steps of healing. Thank you, Jesus. Maybe you need to ask for more grace or you need to ask for more truth. I, I would dare say one. Uh, we probably lean into one or the other. Some of us are grace people and we want to excuse when people have sinned or we want to empower them, believe it or not, when they sin in the name of grace. And that's a lie. We need to say, God, I need more truth. And some of us in society, we've become a truth person and we've become mean. We've become angry. And the Bible says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We need more grace in our lives. Jesus, so we ask you together. If Jesus was full of grace and truth, we need to be filled. So Spirit of God, fill us right now. Fill us completely full of grace. Fill us completely full of truth. And give us a fresh anointing to walk in that as we deal with the situations in life. Maybe we will not deal with this particular subject in a personal way, but we will deal with others, and we want grace and we want truth. Empower us, your church, to be that witness. And even when society rails against that, we care not. We say we will be people like Jesus. So, Spirit of God, anoint us and give us grace, much grace. We love you. We thank you that you keep pouring out grace upon grace. Be praised and be honored by the way we, your people, handle the situations that our culture faces right now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.